forever. Dog. Just between us. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and wary of anybody who says people can't change. <laughs> Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bi-con, bisexual icon, week, and diary haver. You still writing diaries? Yeah, I write longhand. And let me tell you, writing longhand is painful. This is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. But for the month of May, we are also doing an incredible mini season called Mental Health 101, where we are tackling some of the biggest aspects of mental health, mental health treatment, and asking some tough questions from experienced experts. And today's episode is all about bad therapy. We're going to be talking to Caroline Wieda and Ben Feynman all about bad therapy because they are the hosts of the podcast, Very Bad Therapy. What is your bad therapy? therapy experience, Allison. I think I've just had some really dismissive psychiatrists. Go on. I think that my psychiatrist now is much more involved with me, where I felt like in the past I've had psychiatrists who don't really know anything about me. Interesting, because they just prescribe medication. Yeah. I have some vague memory of a male psychiatrist who I, I had no connection with. And I think that now, the more that I know that I know you should also have a connection with your psychiatrist and not just your psychotherapist or yeah. psychologist. I had a psychiatrist. Look, I love this stuff. And obviously, this should come as no surprise because of my family and background and all the woo-woo sort of hippie stuff that goes on. But like, this person also had an acupuncture practice and would then try to like push their acupuncture practice on me as well. Yikes. Yeah, and I and I did it a couple times and I I've done acupuncture a lot starting in the 5th grade onward. That's a t- discussion for another day. Point is is that instead of just like talking to me and giving me the meds and like whatever, which she did as a psychiatrist, she would also kind of always be like, "So do you, maybe you want to do acupuncture too though?" <laughs> I feel like Ooh, yeah. I feel like you've got a side gig going on. Like what is yeah. this hustle you're promoting on the side? Yeah, so I think to start off, if if you're therapist is is promoting their side hustle onto you <laughs> that is a bad sign they're a therapist but they're also selling avon or like they're yeah. a therapist but they're like have you tried these leggings though <laughs> <laughs> have you ever had like a a therapist like a bad therapist situation i feel like i've had some where before i had my current therapist who is a butch lesbian i've had like therapists that i've really had to explain bisexuality too that I've really had to explain queerness to that fully like you start like one I remember started the session by being like so what is bisexuality Ooh, oh no yeah and I just felt like I don't know I'm paying you for me to sit here and explain that to you seems wrong like you're not paying me yeah, I will tell you it's wrong. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. I mean, there is an element of therapists being able to ask clarifying questions about cultures they're not familiar with, but it's also on them to do research and to like not rely on the client to tell them everything. I think if you're a practicing therapist in today's society, you should have a basic understanding of different sexualities. And genders. And I think sometimes people are really... Even for me, finding a therapist who understood polyamory was huge. Mm-hmm. Having a yeah. therapist that didn't would be like, but why wouldn't you want to be monogamous? I was like, I, I don't know where to start with you. Yeah. Well, as, as we will learn in this episode, there are a lot of bad therapists out there, but hopefully this will help you pick them out. <laughs> but hopefully this will help you identify them so that you can get out of their practice as fast as possible and find somebody who could actually help you. So stick around after the break and we'll be back with Bad Therapy. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's Mental Health 101 and we're talking all about bad therapy. Today on the show, we're talking to Caroline Wita and Ben Feynman, and we're going to ask them some tough questions about bad therapy because they are the co-hosts of a podcast called Very Bad Therapy. <laughs> uh, so your show talks all about what goes wrong in counseling. Um, why did this come up as a topic for you guys to make a show about? 
Well, uh, we were both actually in our graduate programs. Um, we were uh, different programs, but both doing a marriage and family therapy master's programs and um, becoming therapists. We had started hanging out and chatting with each other about stuff that was interesting to us. And one of the things that we really realized that was lacking in our education was actual real therapy, like especially when it goes when it goes wrong. We watched a lot of uh, videos of the masters doing it. And we really were curious about, you know, we knew that bad therapy happened, but we didn't seem to be talking about it a whole lot. It was really Ben's idea. He came to me one day and he's like, I've got an idea. <laughs> and I was like, tell me everything. Um, yeah, when he said bad therapy, I was like, yes. We're <laughs> One of the issues with this is that people don't know what good therapy is. So how are they supposed to know what bad therapy is? Do you have like certain guidelines that someone can follow, like or certain red flags where it's like, oh, no, maybe this person isn't the best for me? Yeah. And I think it's such an important point that we don't necessarily know what good therapy is. Mm -hmm. And that's true for therapists as well. Mm -hmm. We we learn specific ways of doing therapy and we kind of fit the idea of what good therapy is into that. But good therapy can't be dictated by a therapist because if your therapist thinks that they're doing great therapy, but you leave feeling worse every week, that isn't good therapy. Like the bottom line is, does it help the client? And I think the same is true for bad therapy. That, and this is something Carrie and I have found out in doing our podcast that sometimes we'll hear stories and people will say, my therapist did X, Y, and Z, and it was so hurtful. Mm. And Carrie and I will talk and be like, well, shit, like we've done that with our clients, but some of them have found it helpful. Yeah. And so I don't think there is a predetermined good or bad. There is just helping clients understand from their own experience. Is this helping? Is it not helping? And then being able to facilitate a conversation within therapy to say, is this working? If so, what is working? And let's do more of that. Is this not working? If so, why not? What can we do differently? And I think good therapy at its core is open, mm -hmm. is safe, where you as the client, if something is or isn't working, can feel like it's okay to share with your therapist what's going on in your experience. And that's really, really difficult for a lot of people because there's a power dynamic in therapy. A lot of people go into therapy with trauma from relationships with past caregivers where it's hard to speak up and say, hey, I don't know if this is going well for me. Right. And so if you as a client don't feel like you can bring that to your therapist, it's important to check in. Is this something internal? Is this something that you're bringing in because of your past? Is this something that's cultural, that speaking up to an expert is difficult? Or is your therapist simply making it hard for you to say, hey, this is my experience? Because if it's coming from the therapist, that's a big problem. Because mm -hmm. a therapist should always be open to what a client's experience is, good or bad. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I think that there's this movement to sort of say, you know, therapists are people. They're not all-knowing gods who, like, have magic solutions. <laughs> but like, is it the client's responsibility to take into account the therapist's feelings in any way? Like if you were to say, you know, it might be uncomfortable to say what we're doing isn't helping me or right. I feel like you are lacking in this area. Like, is that okay? Or should clients care about their therapist's feelings? Oh God, no. I mean, I, <laughs> yes, care about your therapist's feelings. Obviously, like it, it's, it's hard not to, right? When we are in a relationship with someone and we are sharing like our deepest, darkest with them and they know everything and they've always been there to support us, it's hard not to care about their feelings. But the reality is as a therapist or professionals, sometimes we don't act like it, <laughs> but we should be. And the truth is, this is one thing that Ben and I have learned from doing the show and hearing so many stories of bad therapy is we want clients to know it is your therapy. And chances are, if it's not working for you, it's probably not your fault. There's just like something that's not quite right. It's absolutely okay to bring it up to your therapist, you know, and say like, hey, you know, I really like, I hate it when you ask me questions about my childhood. I, I really don't think it's that relevant. I'd rather focus on something else. Or, you know, I, I feel like you're giving me a lot of great like homework and stuff, but I think that maybe the problem might be stuff that happened to me in my childhood. And I'd like to talk more about mm -hmm. that. You should absolutely feel comfortable doing that with your therapist. It goes really bad when clients actually like are able to get that confident and, and share that with their therapist. And then the therapist gets defensive about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I desperately want clients to know if that happens, you are not in the wrong. You are not doing therapy wrong. You are not, there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. It's your therapy. It should be like tailored to you. It's, it's the therapist's responsibility to be the professional and not react offensively. 
But there is also an inherent discomfort in therapy, right? And so how can someone sort of know if that discomfort is just from the growing pains of putting in the work or because the therapy is bad? I think the the most important thing for me is trust your gut. Mm -hmm. And if that discomfort, if that uncertainty is there, try and have a conversation with it about it with your therapist. And I, beyond that, I'm not sure if there's anything more specific. And Carrie, I'm curious if you feel otherwise. Allison, like you said, that discomfort will be there. It's a part of therapy. It doesn't necessarily mean that something's not going well, mm-hmm. but it shouldn't be avoided. And I think a lot of therapists, to Carrie's point about when they get defensive, they want to avoid it because we are educated often to always do good therapy, that if something goes wrong, it's probably the client's fault. And I absolutely hate that because it shifts the responsibility when things don't go well to the clients. And so if they get a sense that something isn't going well and they bring it up to their therapist and the therapist has a mentality of you're just not ready for therapy or you're not putting in the work or any of those memes that I think serve to harm clients and protect the feelings of therapists, if that gets put back on you as a client, that goes beyond just general discomfort. That goes into invalidation and a lack of curiosity. Yeah, I think, Allison, I think you're making a really good point because like, you're right. Like there, it can be, you know, where you're in therapy and maybe you don't, you're uncomfortable. You don't want to think about, you know, how you were bullied as a kid and you don't want to talk about it. You don't want to bring it up, but maybe that might be helpful. The research is pretty clear that like, there is no like clear winner of like what kind of therapy is better than another therapy. And so I kind of, I really, I want clients to know this too. Like if you don't think it's useful to talk about things in your past. There's different kinds of therapy that you can, you know, go check out. But you're right. The discomfort that you feel just like you don't like thinking about it. You don't want to think about a time when you were uncomfortable or you're very uncomfortable sitting in a current like difficult feeling. Is that what's going on? Or is it the therapist that's like making something problematic. We had, we just had a conversation with a guest on the show that I think is like kind of demonstrates this difference, like when it can be super problematic. Uh, She came in telling her therapist, you know, I'm, I'm a person of color living in a, in a white culture. She was um, a Filipino living in uh, the UK. She said, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling. She'd lived in Finland before for a while. She's like, I'm really struggling. And so she said to her therapist, like, I'm noticing that like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, getting people are looking at me and and judging me differently. And it's, you know, not okay. And yeah, he challenged her. He said Mm -hmm. like, well, is that, you know, what is your evidence for that? which, yeah, exactly, right? And so in that case, it's like, it's not an instance of her, you know, not not wondering where her part is in this, right? It's her accurately calling out systemic racism Mm -hmm. um, and and saying, this is my experience of it, completely problematized even further by the fact that her therapist was a white man. Of course. And he was, you know, unable to sit with that conversation and, you know, maybe like experience his own, culpability in what she was talking about. Um, but so like that, like those instances are very clear where it's it's not, it, it really shouldn't be about the client not able to sit with something, right? Um, but yeah, there, it, there's definitely a gray area for sure. I think well, that example is so apt and I think happens all the time about people and validating people's ex- clients' experiences of racism and sexism and homophobia. I think that that is like, throughout the industry and it is a problem, but I'm hoping it's shifting as people are, people are being, you know, I'm in a clinical psychology program right now. And like, there's a lot of cultural humility being taught and woven in in the program. But I think a lot of older school therapists are. I'm the only one here who's not a therapist. So I was going to ask, you're not supposed to challenge what the client comes in telling you happened, right? It depends because there's some models of therapy that are very much challenge what the client brings in. And there's some clients who actively want that. And Carrie, this is something I'm sure you've experienced as well. Allison, I guarantee you'll experience this shortly, that some clients will say, I want you to call me on my bullshit. And like they don't want you to just be empathic and ask questions and be validating. They want you to say, yeah, but last week you said X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. and now you're saying this other thing. And with some clients, they would end up on our show saying this was really harmful. Like We had a guest, this was a while back, say that their therapist was just too coddling and that they really wanted the therapist to do what a previous therapist had done, which was to say like, you know, I really hate the fact that you have all this stuff going for you and you don't use any of it. That's what she needed. She needed somebody to challenge her. And she had a therapist who wasn't, and she came on our show to share that experience. And we've heard literally the exact opposite, where somebody will feel like their therapist was dismissive, 
was rude, was invalidating, and yet it works for them, which is why it goes back to facilitating a conversation about what works for you in therapy. If you don't know, let's talk about that. Let's figure it out together. Because I think generally you don't want to start from a place of challenging a client until you know that's what they want, because then you run into really causing harm. Um, but if a client comes to you and says, I want somebody who's stern, who's going to tell me what to do, who's going to challenge my bullshit, then there's no reason not to. You just have to make sure along the way you're checking in that you're not crossing any boundaries and kind of going past their comfort level. Is it a red flag to feel like you can't tell your therapist something? I mean, I would like there are plenty of therapists who would say, yeah, absolutely. I think it's something to think about, like why that is, right? Like what is what is coming up? Like what what is preventing you from bringing something up to your therapist? Is it that you're uncomfortable about talking about it? Is it your therapist has said something weird in the past that makes, you know, you think their reaction is going to be bad? It takes a while sometimes, right, to develop that relationship. It shouldn't take that long. If you don't feel comfortable with your therapist after like session three, it's probably not a right fit. Um, and that's a thing that happens. Like that is absolutely a thing that happens. Sometimes it's just not a fit. And that doesn't mean you're bad at therapy. Like it doesn't mean you're bad at doing therapy, like as a client, right? It's It just means maybe this isn't the right uh, relationship. And it can take some people a long time to feel comfortable sharing, you know, really hard stuff, especially if though it's a situation like uh, our guest that I was talking about a second ago, you know, she mentioned at the end of this conversation where he totally like invalidated her experience of experiencing racism. She realized at the end of the session, she's like, I am never, I'm going to spend my entire therapy with him convincing him. This is a thing I experienced, mm -hmm. right? That's a huge red flag. That's just a no-go. And she didn't go back, so. Obviously, that is an example of like racism, homophobia, sexism, any of these systemic oppression. The therapist needs to to trust your expertise. But for other things, like if there is some some pushback, like when you're saying like, I don't want to talk about my childhood or something, is it helpful for the therapist to explain why they want you to talk about your childhood? I feel like a lot of therapy people, they don't understand the purpose of what the therapist is doing. And do you think that the therapist explaining that purpose is helpful? I would say absolutely. I think it's very important. And it's a huge part of setting therapy up for success that you as a client should have a sense of what your therapist is doing mm -hmm. and why. And that's something that should be talked about early on. It's probably something that should be like on their website or on their Psychology Today profile or whatever. So you have a sense of what you're getting into and talked about occasionally throughout the process of therapy so that you still feel like you're in touch with what's going on. Because it's really important that that is something that you as a client are on board with. And so if a therapist is saying, hey, it's important that we talk about your childhood and you're like, eh, I really don't think that's right for me, not what I'm interested in. And the therapist says, well, let me just share a bit about why I feel like that's important. And then you still say, not interested. That's Totally. That's probably a healthy dialogue because the therapist is trying to empower you with the information on where they're coming from and giving you the choice at the end of that to say, is this something you want or not? Mm -hmm. Because it is important that you know what a therapist is doing. It's more important that a therapist is listening to you if you say that isn't what I'm here for. How much should a therapist share of themselves? And does that matter in terms of what their theoretical orientation is? Does it matter in terms of like their relationship client to client? You know, I think we originally thought of, of therapists as this blank slate and this, you know, the psychodynamic approach of like Freud just sitting behind you as you talked about your dreams for three hours a day. But like, what do we see now? Is it a red flag if your therapist responds to your story by telling a story of their own? Like how much of that should someone expect? Like you said, it's like there's a lot of debate around this because, yeah, like our where the field came from certainly has been for the most part more of this like blank slate sort of thing where the therapist is kind of enigmatic. There were theoretical reasons why that was important to the actual process of therapy. But the more modern kind of approaches to therapy don't really depend on that so much. And in fact, the more like postmodern social justice oriented kind of approaches to therapy recognize that like the, those kind of um, norms were created when therapy was for white people, by white people, you know, in a very upper middle class, you know, kind of context. Now we're recognizing that is can be harmful, right? Because one of the ways that it can be problematic is if your therapist it kind of is sitting in a, a power dynamic, like a one-up power position to the client, um, especially say if I am as like a white person sitting with a black person, right? There can be just like this dynamic in the room that is unequal. And if, if I don't take the control of that and like welcome transparency or, you know, do some like self-disclosing about who I am, what I believe, that person might 
do what they've done their whole life around white people, which is, you know, be like non-threatening, hide certain things, certain ways they feel. They might hide how they feel about me. Whereas if I can be more um, upfront and say, this is who I am, I acknowledge the fact that, you know, hey, I'm a white lady here in therapy with you um, is like, this is something I want to talk about. Again, it becomes problematic when, you know, if you're sharing something and your therapist is just always relating it back to themselves, (laughs) like that's bad therapy. And like, you'll know, right? You will like, I would encourage clients to not jump to the conclusion like, oh, my therapist said something about themselves. Like that's bad. It might like, think about like how it lands for you. Does it make you feel closer to your therapist? Does it make you feel safer around your therapist? Or does it make you feel like you're providing the therapy a little bit? (laughs) Or that you're at a party and someone's like, Oh, I have the same story. Here we go. <laughs> your therapist <laughs> like, like one ups you. You talk yeah. about your trauma, and the therapist talks oh, about. Oh, you think their trauma. that's bad? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I think a, a good rule of thumb that I would add to what you were saying, Carrie, is if it feels like the therapist is self-disclosing for your benefit, and you feel like it benefits your therapy, thumbs up. If it feels like a therapist is self-disclosing for their benefit, that's a huge red flag. And an extreme example of this from uh, a episode that we recently put out was a woman whose therapist, as it turns out, was essentially grooming her for inappropriate sexual behavior. And this started off with like small, innocent things. He would talk about his family. He would show her pictures of, you know, him and his family at the beach. He followed her on Instagram. And it it slowly progressed to the point where the self-disclosures were getting more and more inappropriate, completely detached from the focus of therapy to the point where he actually shared with her that he would think about her and masturbate after their sessions. Goodbye which goes like so far beyond a red flag, obviously. Mm. But it's the kind of thing where if you get a sense that like, you know what, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't seem to be for my benefit or for my therapy. It doesn't mean your therapist is grooming you, but it does mean that there are boundary issues. And that's a huge, huge problem when you feel like you're taking care of your therapist's boundaries. I think if you're feeling like you're taking care of your therapist at all. (laughs) Yeah. You know, yeah. like Mm -hmm. as much as it is a relationship, the inherent power dynamic that we talked about is that they're there to help you and it's not supposed to feel this, you know, this mutualness that other relationships have. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. The thing that I say like all the time is like, I feel very uncomfortable. I have the hardest time telling my hairstylist who I've seen forever. Like, I actually don't like it when you do that. I have a hard time doing that. Right. And I feel like sometimes that's like what can happen in therapy. You can feel like you don't want to, tell this person like what's not working out or, but you're right. Like where that becomes, like if you are feeling like you have to, or you're being, there's an expectation to manage their feelings that they're going to get hurt or upset. Right. You feel like you you shouldn't feel like you can hurt your therapist. I was going to say, because um, like had, you know, oftentimes conflict is so hard for people. Like, is it on the therapist to be like, it seems like you're not telling me what works and what doesn't, or it seems like you avoid conflict. Is there anything I can do? Like, how does that work if you have a client that you're like, I'm pretty sure they have criticisms or things that they need that they don't feel they can say? Yeah, it's a great question because it takes time. Yeah. And I think there's a a mistake that a lot of therapists make and, you know, Carrie and myself included, well, myself included, Carrie, I don't want to just assume oh, you that you're making I the same mistakes. I make all the same mistakes. <laughs> I make more. <laughs> but that if you let your clients know, like in the intake or in the first session that, hey, you can tell me anything, even if you feel like something isn't working, that if they don't bring it up, it means everything's fine. For a lot of people, and I think myself included, I am a caretaking kind of person in relationships with other people. And so if somebody says like, hey, you can tell me anything, even if it's not going well, I'll be like, thanks, I really appreciate that. I'm never going to tell you anything. <laughs> because I don't want to hurt your feelings. And I think a lot of people who go to therapy are the same way. And that isn't a problem. The problem is if a therapist isn't committed to making them feel safe, to making them feel like they can bring things up so that maybe it takes a week, maybe it takes a month, maybe it takes a year that a client can begin to advocate for themselves. And what Carrie and I like to talk about is creating a culture of feedback as therapists, where over time we do things that reinforce this notion that, hey, we really want to know if you have things to share, even if it's difficult. Because for some clients, even the smallest thing can feel monumental mm-hmm. to bring up when you're sharing it with a therapist. And so it really is the slow process for a lot of people to just feel a little bit safer, a little bit safer, and then take that risk. And if you take that risk and it's met with defensiveness and it's met with invalidation, that's when people end up on our show. That's when bad therapy happens. And honestly, that's something that I've done. That's probably some of my biggest mistakes are to say, hey, you can tell me anything and then not be prepared to handle it well when they come to me. 
I mean, mm-hmm. it, it can be hugely detrimental to therapeutic progress. One of the things that we love more than anything is feedback informed treatment. Clients don't know about it. And I feel like that's a disservice. I feel like they should know about it. Not that like, I feel like every therapist must do this, but it's an option. If you're a client in therapy, there is something called feedback informed treatment. You could go online and print out the form for your therapist if you want to. Um, they're free. They're on Scott Miller's website. There is a there's a certain way that you can do feedback informed treatment where you, your therapist gives you a, a four question survey at the beginning of every session and a four question survey at the end of every session. They are different. The one at the end of the session is called the session rating scale. And it asks these questions like, you know, did we talk about what you wanted to talk about today? Did you feel like you were respected? You know, a lot of therapists dismiss that stuff and they're like, I ask my clients. Well, you maybe ask once every six weeks and do your clients feel comfortable bringing that up to you? So like if you are a client who naturally feels like you can't talk to your therapist, you can't, that you're conflict avoidant, whatever, this might be something that you could do. You could say, I heard about it on this podcast. Would you mind filling out these forms with me every week for a while? It kind of gives you like a very artificial, but like it's moment, this way in to be like, well, I have to fill out this form. So. And when you write it down, maybe it's less scary. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yeah. For sure. And just real quick, you can actually, it tracks over time. It's designed so that you see the progress. And what the research shows is that the best outcomes in therapy aren't when those scores are super high from the start, Mm -hmm. because that might symbolize that somebody never felt safe to give negative feedback. The best outcomes are when those scores are a bit lower and then slowly increase over time and then get to the, the top of the scale, because that suggests that the therapist has helped the client feel safe enough to say, hey, this thing that we're doing, let's stop doing it. It's not right for me. And I think you're right that every therapist is going to make mistakes. That's sort of a given just in that so much of therapy is just like feelings and, you know, you're making these calls in the room. You're not following these strict, you know, outlines of what to do. So what do you do as a therapist if there has been a rupture in the relationship? If you have made a mistake, if you have noticed that the client is less trusting of you or something has, you know, there's now a division in the relationship. How do you heal that? And is that like fixable? Uh, yeah. I mean, yes, it should be. It should be. That's You're with a good therapist and you're doing a therapy if that if that happens, because it's going to happen and if it's fixable when it does. So there are kind of two ways this plays out when this happens, right? In, in the best case scenario, the client will feel comfortable enough to bring it up to the therapist and say, hey, I did not like that you said that. You know, and this has happened to me so much for stuff that you cannot see coming, right? Like, for example, most of my clients have enjoyed or at least you know, get a kick out of that I will swear in session. But I had one client who said, you know, I came back like the next session and was like, I, I've been thinking about this and, and I really didn't like that you swore in our session last week. Um, you're supposed to be the professional and it made me feel really uncomfortable. So I have a choice there to make, right? The, the way I hope therapists would take something like that is like, this is a gift of feedback. It, we have so little to go on about like what is helpful for our clients. But when they come out and tell you like this did not work for me, like this is the greatest day. It feels terrible. And you therapists do need to like work on that reaction because it's the natural human reaction to be like, oh, I didn't mean to. I, I didn't think it was, a, you know, like get really defensive about it. So it's important for therapists is part of their professional training to get real with themselves about how they react to negative feedback and rein it in. Come up with a way that you can, in the moment, not cause harm to your client by reacting defensively, but taking it in. And so, you know, I'm not going to say I do it perfectly every time. I so don't. But I try to say thank you, first of all, so much for being willing to share that with me. Um, That was probably kind of hard. And let's talk about it. And let's talk about what you would prefer. And I'm not saying that, like, you're always going to just do whatever your client tells you to do. Um, But in this instance, like, that's a reasonable request that I don't, I shouldn't swear in session with client. And that's fine. The other part though, that's more difficult is when the client doesn't feel comfortable saying anything and the therapist hopefully will notice. And like Ben said earlier, since the feedback does not mean everything is going great. So hopefully the client or the therapist is like paying attention and tracking and, and is able to pick on some cue. Even the best therapists are not mind readers, right? And sometimes something works so great with 80% of your clients, they may not have any idea that it didn't work for you. 
Um, so in that case, like I've encouraged my clients, a very common therapy boundary is to not discuss clinical stuff like in emails or texts like that you're sending in between sessions. That's pretty typical for a therapist to say, I'll talk about scheduling stuff in between, but we are going to keep clinical stuff in session. I choose to tell my clients, like, if you feel like there's something you need to tell me about how therapy is going, but you don't feel comfortable saying it to me, I welcome that in email. I'm going to acknowledge I got the email and we're not going to get into a back and forth, you know, about like working it out over email because that doesn't work ever under any circumstances. Um, but I'll, I'll bring it up in, in session. So then they have like a way to kind of, you know, like a sheltered sort of way, get their feedback out, right? And then I can be the professional in session and bring it up and say, I know this is probably really hard to talk about, but can we have a conversation? I love that. I didn't know you did that. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, I'm really? stealing that. Like, yeah, today. steal it. Yeah, it works great. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I've ever had anybody do it. And maybe that's something, you know, like nobody's ever taken me up on that, but they have said stuff in the room. Maybe that makes it feel better, mm -hmm. you know, for, for them to, to more likely that they're going to say it to me in the room. I don't know. What, what should you expect in terms of like physical contact with your therapist? Ah, do you know? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, is it a, like, do you walk in when you first meet them? Do you shake their hand? Like if, if things have been a really rough session, is it appropriate for them to give you a hug? Like what are those, those general boundaries? I think the boundaries are, for therapists, err on the side of caution and always honor the ethics codes because they're, they're there for a reason. And make sure that if you are going to do any kind of physical touch, that you get consent first. That if you feel like, and maybe that's not the case with like an initial handshake, but any kind of a hug, any kind of like putting your hand on a client's knee while they're crying, anything like that, it's very much like an old way of thinking about therapy, that the therapist can cross these kinds of boundaries, that the therapist knows best, that the therapist knows when physical touch is beneficial for a client. But as we're all becoming more trauma-informed, we realize that physical touch can be a huge, huge problem when it's not given with consent. And it's another problem about asking for consent in therapy is that there is a power relationship. Clients are in a one-down position, and it is very hard for a lot of people to not give consent when their therapist asks for something. So if a therapist says, can I give you a hug? A lot of clients who might not want it will say, oh, sure, that's fine. They don't want to be difficult. They don't want to come across in a certain way, which is why, generally speaking, there shouldn't be a lot of physical touch. And it's not to say that that's like an absolute, but I think there needs to be really good clinical rationale for why a therapist is doing it. And I think if a client feels like touch isn't right for them, and they also don't feel like it's okay to share that with their therapist, that is a double red flag because physical touch is an area where there's not a whole lot of reason why it makes a significant difference in therapy. I mean, it might in certain instances, but then you're really rolling the dice about, is this going to be helpful or not? But it can cause a lot of harm. It can cross a lot of boundaries. And so it's a better safe than sorry kind of approach from the therapist's perspective. And from the client's perspective, it's just like, if you don't feel comfortable with something your therapist is doing, and it has to do with physical touch. That's a problem. And I mean, an episode we had a while back, we, we actually titled it Cuddle Therapy because the therapist would literally cuddle. It was, it was an older male therapist who would cuddle his younger female client. And he called it Cuddle, th cuddle Therapy. And it was another instance. We've done two episodes that fall into this category of grooming behavior in therapy. Mm -hmm. and it was another instance where that was taking place. And I mean, that it's beyond a red flag. And so if there's touch in therapy, I think there has to be a really, really good reason why it's there, even at the level of like a hand on a knee or a handshake. It can just go so horribly wrong if you're not careful. It's not really worth it. <laughs> no. I have a very maybe seemingly obvious question. On our Instagram, we asked for questions from people and this person was sort of like, I know a therapist isn't supposed to be giving advice, but like sometimes you go into therapy and you're like, okay, but I want advice. Or like if if a therapist is giving you a lot of advice, they're not supposed to be telling you what to do, right? Like how, that sounds like a really obvious question, but where does it therapy and advice go together? And like, what, what should it be? It's a great question because a lot of clients have totally different like ideas, right? About yeah. what they are expecting. And so sometimes they go to therapy thinking this is the mental health advice place where I go and get advice on how to act like a healthy human. And others see it as like a support, an emotional support, and they don't want anyone telling them what to do. They just want to be seen and heard. I feel like they, therapy tends to work 
either way, no matter what kind of person you are, no matter what kind of therapy you're seeking, if you find someone who, a therapist who wants to work with you in that way and is happy to do that, then then therapy tends to be pretty successful. But if a therapist is giving you advice that you're like, I don't feel comfortable taking this advice, how do you know if it's just because you're uncomfortable with growing or if it's like bad advice? Oh, that's like, honestly, if it feels like bad advice, it probably is. Um, Typically, like what I've kind of heard is I hate when therapists are like, I don't know, what do you think you should do? Right. Like that's, that's- Hey, wait, I do that all the time. (laughs) I'm sure you do, Ben. I'm sure you do. Um, And I think it's a dodge and I don't think, I don't like it. So I'm more (laughs) upfront about it. Ben, I will say like, I, you know, I think you're asking like my opinion. Now I want to give you my, like, I will give a footnote, like our, or like a preamble and be like, here's the thing. This is coming from me. This is coming from my experience. This is coming from the one hour I see you a week. So I don't really know what the rest of your life is like. It seems like if you do this, this might happen based on what you've told me so far in our work together. Yeah. I don't know if that works for you or not. If a therapist is like- Dump him. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah no, <laughs> I hate that. No therapist, I don't even care. Like the coolest therapist should not be like, dump him. I, I don't think so. I mean, unless there's like danger involved. I, but I don't, I don't think your therapist, if your therapist is giving you advice, telling you to do something that doesn't feel right, that's not good. That's not what therapy is yeah. about. Go to like a coach or something or like, you know, Ooh. write to an advice column or something. But, you know, that's yeah. the therapist is there to like teach you how to figure out what you need. That's that's what the work is so that you don't need to go back and ask somebody for advice. It's so twisty. Like I was telling Allison, my partner was trying to break up with a therapist and the therapist was like, you have to come see me for like two more months of sessions so we can wind this down. And it was so confusing because the power dynamic, they have such access to like your thinking. Like I was like, she's using what she knows about you. And I think there's something so important there because if your partner doesn't agree, there is no way for that to be healthy or correct based on the therapist logic. The therapist is saying, you can't just want to leave because you have a problem with ghosting. Yeah. The therapist is saying, if you want to leave, it's like a sign of your pathology. Like I think like with a lot of stuff with bad therapy or something, you would feel like embarrassed. But like, because I was like, like ask one other friend if that's weird. Oh, I think you should ask everybody you know. If you feel like something's weird in therapy, literally ask all of your friends, your family. Yeah, anybody. is this weird? Yeah. We had what, oh, it was the grooming therapist who was like, don't tell your partner about what we talk about because they can't help you. Like oh. if, if a ther- yeah, if a therapist is, that's, yeah, trying to like get you to not talk to other people about what's going on in the room, that is like a power struggle. Um, no, but you're, you're totally right. The truth is, there's a whole clinical reason why, like we are always told this in training, like you don't just terminate with your clients. It's not helpful. It's not good. You're supposed to have this winding down period. I don't think that's true. I think if you found that you don't like going to your therapist and it's hurting you, then just don't ever go again. I don't <laughs> care if you ghost them, like do it. But what it sounds like what, what this therapist did was just super pathologizing. And this <laughs> comes up a lot, right? I felt like it was like she thought of herself as a girlfriend who was getting ghosted. And I was like, oh, she's upset you're dumping her. Like she's taking it personally. And I think like going back to what you were talking, Gabby, about like giving advice and even just like the different responses between, you know, Carrie and Ben, like I think there is more directive type of therapy and more supportive type of therapy and figuring out again, like what works for you. Right. And I also think this can be cultural in terms of like, Oh, some people go in and being like, I want more directive therapy. I want more like tangible tips and tricks and other people might go in and they're there for the support. And so how do you figure out what type of therapy works for you? I think this is where the therapist being able to communicate in everything they do, not just in what they say in therapy, but you know, what their online presence is, like mm-hmm. how, however you interact with your therapist, they should be able to communicate to you in some way that this is what we're going to do in therapy so that you have a sense of, is this right for me? Does this fit with my culture? Does this fit with my preferences? And so you're not going to be surprised by expecting one thing and finding it to be completely different. But I think there are some people, especially if it's your first time going to therapy where you have no idea, mm-hmm. you just assume you go and then you leave and you feel better. And you don't necessarily care about about all that other stuff. Like it's already fairly expensive. It takes time. 
certainly like pre-COVID, you had to drive. And here in LA, it's like an hour to go to a session that's like half a mile down the street. <laughs> Sometimes you don't care about that stuff. You just want therapy to work. And that's where I think just being able to have a dialogue with your therapist is so important because you may not care about the ins and outs of therapy, but you know when something doesn't feel right for you. You know when therapy isn't working and you wake up going, oh, I have therapy today. Damn. Mm -hmm. Like that's not a good sign. It may be like, oh, this is going to be hard, but it's worth it. But if you just don't want to go because you're not getting benefit, there should be some reason that you know why it's not helping so that you can have a conversation with your therapist. And that has to come from the therapist themselves. Like we are, as therapists, we are tasked with empowering clients to better understand the process so that they can advocate for themselves. I really encourage clients to think like if you're if you're about to go into therapy, if you're thinking, I, I think I need therapy, what does that mean to you? Like what is going on for you that you think therapy might actually help you with? And what do you think that looks like? What do you think is going to happen in therapy that um, you might not know how it is, but like what are you looking for? Um, and that's a good place like to start because the truth is like there is not one approach like to therapy. It's it's so different. And so if you are sitting, you know, if you have like this assumption, right? That, oh, this is what therapy is. You're going to encounter a lot of therapists who don't think that way at all. The worst thing is for you to think one thing, go into a therapist's office and have it not at all be like what you thought this is what therapy is. Sometimes it can be great, but more, more often you're, it's not going to work out. You're going to think the therapist either doesn't know what they're doing or like this is awful. I encourage clients to think about what are you hoping to get out of it? Ask before you go in for a session, get the therapist on the phone or shoot them an email and say, this is what I'm hoping to get out of therapy. Is this something you do? And if they come back with something that's like, well, that sure would be nice, but I think the place to begin would be blah, blah, blah. And that's not what you're looking for. Then not a good fit. Move on to the next one. My professor said something really interesting the other night about in terms of like, that thing of like, don't do this anymore. And and she was like, I think it's morally irresponsible when therapists ask a client to give up a coping skill without supplying a new one. So to oh, be God, like, so good, yeah. right? Of like, stop yeah. drinking. Well, that's a coping oh, skill. Yeah. Yep. What are we filling that with? Stop seeing this toxic ex-boyfriend. That's a coping skill. What are we filling yeah. that with? There, there's <laughs> a question on the Instagram that's like, my I'm an introvert. My therapist is trying to change me and give me like things to be an extrovert. And I, I was reading it and I was like, I don't know the answer to that. But what you just said, Allison, is like, you can't, if she's just like, you have to go make small talk with people, but like not giving you anything that will help you do that, that's yeah. probably not helpful. And does this person want to not be an introvert? Exactly. That's the thing, right? Our culture has like a uh, an assumption that extroverted people are more popular, more successful, mm -hmm. whatever, and that maybe it's worse to be an introvert. I would really challenge that as a therapist and say like, well, wait, hold up. Like, let, who's telling you you need to be an extrovert? Exactly. And what's seen as like, this is good for you. I think sometimes yeah. the power dynamic in therapy, I say this about a lot of people where you might think the power dynamic is different. Like, I think this about therapists accountants, managers, they work for you. Like, yes. You yes. tell them what to do. And yes. if they, you need things explained to you, guess what? They're getting money from you to sit down and explain it to you. If they're like, well, now you have to be an extrovert and here's what you have to do. And you're like, well, I like the way I am. And they're like, well, I think that it's good for you to change. You can be like, well, I think it's good for me to take my money elsewhere. Like you're, the, you're paying. Yeah. Without foreclosing sessions. Yeah, but this is the thing that I also talked about was like the reframe from patient to client where it's like, you know, the power dynamic is yes, the therapist like knows more or whatever, but the power dynamic is really, if you think about it, you're paying them. You can go to a different therapist. <laughs> Carrie and I are, are both trained in a, a type of therapy called narrative therapy. And it's one of the most like client focused versions of therapy. It actually doesn't even use the word client. A lot of narrative therapists will think of their clients as consumers. Ah. The, the therapist consults with the consumer about their life. And it does something with language to just completely eliminate that kind of hierarchical relationship. I mean, as much as possible. It's never, it can never be fully gotten rid of. Mm -hmm. But to really be intentional about saying like, this is your time. You mm -hmm. owe me nothing. You can leave. You can do whatever you want as long as it's within the ethical and legal guidelines. And like, of course, like you're paying the, the required fee. Otherwise, this is your time to do whatever you want with and I will support you in that. And we can figure it out together how that helps you lead like your preferred reality in a sense. So if you experience bad therapy, where do you report it? What do you do? 
It depends on your state. Every state has a different uh, licensing board for mental health professionals and every license has it like usually has a different board. It's very easy. It's it's for clients. It's not, it sounds more complicated than it is, but just know that like you need to know what your ther- what the therapist's uh, license is. And then you just got to Google like what board administers that license in the state that you live in. And then you go to their website and usually pretty prominently on that website is Lodge a Complaint. In fact, like where I was doing my training hours, we just implemented a policy where part of the intake was handing, like explaining the complaint procedure. And I feel like every therapist should have to do that. But yeah, so you just, just go online and Google it and there's an easy way to do it. Now, the problem is if you're, if you really want to go all the way, what ends up happening is it not like the lawsuit gets like kind of litigated in the board. The action that you're hoping to get is like a professional censure or some sort of like a um, punishment, right? And so you may have to end up talking about what happened in a public hearing where, you know, maybe the public might be hearing it. Sometimes they do it in closed session. It really depends. Unfortunately, some of that information does become more public than private. But they make an effort to protect identities. And I hope that that doesn't hold somebody back from reporting. Once it goes through the board, if the board decides ultimately there wasn't enough wrongdoing, but you still feel like there was, you can lodge, like try to lodge a criminal complaint. Sometimes if the licensing board hasn't said there's like a professional problem here, there probably isn't a criminal problem, but that's kind of how that works. Also negative Yelp reviews, do that. Negative Yelp reviews or come on our podcast. (laughs) I was going to say, take it, take it to Yelp. Or like take it to any sort of review because like I I think a lot of people, they leave and they were like, I was uncomfortable, but you don't know what to do then right. or like what the steps are. How much emotional reaction should you expect from your therapist? So if you're telling them something that really horrible that happened to you, is it appropriate for your therapist to show emotion and perhaps like even cry? I think this is another one of those scenarios where it depends, but it's it's helpful for therapists to err on the side of caution because you don't want the shift to become about your feelings as the therapist, then, then you've fucked up. Mm-hmm. So I think it's normal and human to be affected by client stories of trauma, of hardship, of pain. Even in the room when a client is crying, sometimes it's hard not to cry with them. I think it needs to be organic. If it feels like your therapist is putting on emotions to get a certain response from you, that's not great. But a lot of it is checking in. And if you feel like your therapist is or is not emotional at a level that really resonates with you, I think it's another one of those conversations you can have to say, hey, when I talk about what happened in the past and you go, oh my God, and you like <laughs> you know, cover your face and like you throw your arms up and you know, you make this like exasperated, like histrionic gesture. A therapist should know that A, they shouldn't do that, but B, if a client is saying this is a problem, they should stop. It's really about calibrating with your therapist what is right for you. And if it just feels too weird, then that's another one of those like gut signals that it might just be a red flag that it's not a good fit. And I, I think that I've heard where a therapist like started crying. I think it was probably a guest on the show. The therapist started crying when the client had brought up something that was like not great, but not the trauma that the, the client had come in for, right? Oh. And yeah, and that set the therapist off crying. And so the client was like, well, I can't possibly bring up what I was going to bring up now because you can't even handle that. If you're in that situation, I totally understand how going to the therapist and saying like, it really bothered me that you cried. Probably you're not going to do that. But you could say the next time to your therapist, look, I really want to talk about this other thing, something that is kind of intense. I'm a little worried that you might not be able to handle it. How does that feel to you? Like, or, or, do you think you'd be able to handle me talking about something really dark? And if the therapist, like the therapist should then be like, yes, sorry, I'm a crier. I cry at the drop of a hat. Didn't mean to do that. You know, hopefully they'll be able to address it. But also like clearly, as you can tell from the difference between me and Ben, I am a much more <laughs> reactive person in session. So that's just like my natural state. But like, even so, I think Ben makes a really good point. Like, you know, part of my training was videotaping my sessions as a therapist. And I highly recommend doing that for therapists. Like therapists should absolutely record themselves and see what they look like reacting to their clients. Because I think that there is like, again, a professionalism that that should be, you know, adhered to. But I think that, yeah, some clients, some therapists will cry and, and some therapists won't. But if it's too much, just, yeah, either tell them it's too much or leave. And before we move on to the next section, what would you say to someone who had a bad therapy experience, who feels burned by therapy, who's like, oh, no, that was awful, but 
you know, they think maybe they still need help. What advice would you give them in terms of like giving it a try with somebody else? I guess I have two parts to my answer. One is it's not your fault. Mm. That even if there is something that somehow you were doing that made it difficult for therapy to work, unless you're a mandated client, people go to therapy because they want it to work. And too often they leave feeling like if it didn't work, it's my fault. If the therapist didn't say, hey, sometimes this doesn't work so we can talk about it along the way and make it work, the clients will leave not realizing that it's, it's not that unlikely that therapy doesn't have an impact or that they might even feel worse afterwards. Therapy works for about 60 to 70% of clients. And the other group might walk away feeling like it's their fault, that they're not right for therapy or they did something wrong. So my, my first response is that isn't true. Mm-hmm. That sometimes therapy just isn't a good fit. Sometimes a therapist does bad therapy. And that doesn't mean that it's anything that you as a client did. And I think the second response is that healing is very unique from person to person. Healing is culture bound. Healing is so many things that is therapy, but not therapy. That if therapy doesn't feel like it works for you, if it's a process you don't enjoy, if you've had a few experiences and it just hasn't clicked yet, it might be that your path to healing doesn't go through therapy or not at this point. And that's okay. That's normal. That's healthy. Not everybody is going to benefit from therapy and it's good to give it a shot. And if you feel like, you know what, maybe this just isn't right for me. Maybe there was this list of other things I could try. I would say, go for it. And don't feel bad about yourself because the field of therapy, as wonderful as it is, isn't perfect. And there, there are people that we have blind spots toward in terms of our ability to apply what we have created within this whole institution of therapy towards those people. And when it doesn't work, it shouldn't be that it's the client's fault. It can just be that therapy doesn't quite work for some people. And what would be on that list of other things to try? Oh, I would say it could range from, you know, things like getting more involved with nature, um, doing yoga, getting more attuned with your body, joining some kind of like social or community organization, volunteering. And so you have like that collection of things. And then you can sort of progress up to things like, you know, they're, they're starting to do trials and mental health treatments for like untreatable depression with things like MDMA or ketamine or psilocybin or like electroconvulsive therapy even. And I don't say these things lightly because obviously they carry a significant amount of risk and obviously they are far less studied than things like talk therapy. But talk therapy is not the only thing to explore. And if it's done in a controlled, in a safe, in a professional setting, you don't have to do talk therapy to find healing for mental distress. I guess my one other final question that some people might be wondering is, why are there so many bad therapists and why are they allowed to be in practice? (laughs) It's such a good question. And it's honestly, it's a combination of a a lot of factors, like a lot of factors. Number one, we don't know what good therapy is. Like it's, we know a lot of things that do work. We don't know what makes one therapist better than the other. All of the training is really just kind of like, well, this sounds right. I mean, like, just so you know, clinical licensing exam is like written is a survey goes out to all of the therapists and whatever given license. So marriage and family therapists, a survey goes out to practicing marriage and family therapists from the licensing board. And it's like, what do you think people should know about? What do you think therapists should know? And so they fill it out and they send it back. And that's how questions get created for the licensing exam. So then that's what therapists study for to pass the licensing exam. And that's what graduate programs are supposed to teach them about so they can pass the licensing exam. None of this has anything to do with what actually works in therapy. It's all based on what some therapists, usually a couple generations prior, think works in therapy based on like their own personal experience. I think that's a backwards way to do it, uh, but that's where we are. And there are a lot of people who are trying to fix that. You know, institutional inertia is a thing and it's very hard to affect these kind of broad changes. That's kind of why Ben and I feel so strongly about the fact that like, we can't change the big monster of like this industry is still going to mint new bad therapists daily, like on the regular. And we have decided like, we're going to go to the streets with us and like tell people like, there's a lot of bad therapy. It might be happening to you. It's probably not your fault. And you know, there's so many therapists, try somebody new. Yeah. Cause all you need to do is you need to graduate your program and pass the licensing <laughs> test. And then you're off to the races. Allison has found that this is too easy. <laughs> it is. Oh, I concur a hundred percent. Yeah, it's depressing. 
Well, thank you so much not to leave in a place of no hope. I think there is hope in that just the more that we can educate people about what good therapy looks like, hopefully the less people will find themselves stuck with these people who are, are harmful. So stick around. After the break, we'll be asking three questions. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you all about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice to text feature. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Right before I found out about this project, my mom made an offhand comment about wanting to write a memoir because she had such a wild childhood and there are all these things she's never really talked to us about. But asking someone to sit down and write a memoir is kind of daunting. So then I got her mylifeinabook.com and now she's getting prompts to answer on a weekly basis and it's a lot easier than just undertaking an entire memoir. I'm so excited to see what my mom does with mylifeinabook.com because she's someone who doesn't always feel comfortable just sharing about herself, but having these prompts and knowing that I really want to hear her answers is going to inspire her to probably share more with me about her life and her upbringing than I've ever been shared with before. So I'm so excited for that. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code JUSTBETWEENUS at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com. Use code JUSTBETWEENUS for 10% off today. Hi everyone, Allison here. Anyone who knows me well knows that I love to read. I am always looking for new books and that is why I'm so excited that this episode is sponsored by Book of the Month. Book of the Month's mission is to help readers discover new books they love and to promote the work of emerging authors. It was so fun for me to get to pick which book I wanted to read this month and have it shipped right to my door. Book of the Month makes it easy to decide which book to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles. They pick some of the best new books for you to choose from. All the books are good, so you can't go wrong. Every aspect of the Book of the Month experience is designed to be fun and special for readers. They have a highly anticipated release at the beginning of each month. Books are delivered in this really adorable bright blue box, and there's a fun app to help you pick your book and track your reading process. They also offer great values on new release hardcover fiction. It's much cheaper than other options, shipping is always free, and with a loyalty program, you get rewards and even lower prices the longer you stay as a member. My first book from Book of the Month was The Husbands by Holly Gramazio. I am tearing through this book. It is so fun. It's basically about this woman who one day comes home and there's a husband in her apartment and she's like, where did you come from? And then she figures out that every time her new husband goes into the attic, a new husband comes out and she's, she's like shuffling through all these different husbands from the attic trying to figure out which one is the best. It is right up my alley and I love it so much. So if you want to take part in Book of the Month and have a brand new book shipped right to your door every single month, go to bookofthemonth.com and get your first book for $5 with code PEDALS. That's $5 off with code PEDALS. I cannot recommend this enough. Just between us, it's time for our new segment, Three Questions. We love to get inside mental health professionals' own journey with their own mental health. And so our first question posed to you is, what is something you wish you had known about managing your own mental health when you were younger? I was thinking about this, and I think my answer is just that it's there. <laughs> because I think about when I was growing up, certainly being like socialized into society, being masculine. I'm a gay man, but I was in the closet then. And I had so many reasons to not feel my feelings. Mm -hmm. And I just stuffed it all down. And I don't think I even would have realized until I was in my late teens that I, I really had mental health to work on. 
that it was something that was relevant, that it needed attention. I just sort of like compartmentalized it and placed it aside because that was the easiest way to get through childhood. Um, so I think I just wish I knew that it was there and that it was okay for it to be there. That's so funny because like I went through my whole childhood having all the feelings all the time. <laughs> and I think the thing that I wish I had known was like, you don't need to <laughs> sometimes be like this emphasis. Maybe it's just for women, Ben. I don't know. But like this sense that like, if you're having a feeling, you need to explore it and figure out what's going on. And I was doing a whole lot of that, which was just making me like spin in circles. And then like in my late twenties, was it my late twenties, early thirties, something like that. I went on an antidepressant. And all of a sudden I wasn't like subject to wild mood swings. And I realized, you know, oh God, I can choose whether like I want to have that feeling or not. And if I don't want to go there, if I'm, if I don't feel like freaking out, I can practice mindfulness or something and choose not to, you know, that's what I wish. Yeah. That's relatable. Learning that every feeling of anxiety you have isn't necessarily tied to anything in your life is very <laughs> yes, important. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I just need a snack. Exactly. Right. Oh my God. How often are you just hungry? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So our next question is, what is something you're glad that you now know about mental health and that you implement into your daily life? That it is okay to not be okay. Mm-hmm. Knowing that and really internalizing that is one of the greatest gifts that I have given to myself in my adult life. Definitely. I'm glad I know about bad therapy. My in, With my first therapist that I ever had, I thought like he was the greatest therapist. He was amazing. And so I just kept going. And after a while, he started falling asleep in our sessions. And, <laughs> and I literally thought... I'm boring my therapist. My life is so mindlessly boring that he's depressed just listening to me. I'm glad I now know that like, no, he just really shouldn't have fallen asleep in our sessions. Like that wasn't on me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, our final question is, what is something that you're still trying to learn and implement into your own mental health care? Something that maybe you know you should be working on, but it's just, it's hard. It's hard. (laughs) I think for me, this shows up in relationships Mm. where I feel like my way is the right way. So Mm. the dishwasher has to be organized a certain way. Oh my God. Am I dating you? Don't let Mal hear this. (laughs) Don't let Mal hear this. And like certain things have to be in their place and they they don't. It just feels better to me. And if my fiance disagrees, he's not right. I'm not right. We're both right, which means we just have to talk about it and find compromises that work for both of us. I'm going to send my partner straight to you. Straight to you. Straight from this podcast. You're about to have a new client. Their name is Mal. <laughs> no no closing session required if it doesn't work out. Please. I feel like the thing that I'm trying to uh, learn or like cope with is coming out of the pandemic. Mm. I feel like I have found myself on the freeway and having like super anxiety about driving a car on the freeway after like a year of having not done that. And I'm like so anxious to like go out and see people, even though it's like the only thing I've wanted to do for a year. So I'm trying to like remind myself that this is like a natural reaction. I'm not trying to judge my feelings of anxiety or fear or anything as we try to go forward through all of this. So that's where Yeah, Allison always says, don't put like fear or shame on top of the feeling. Your big thing was always like, you already have the feeling, don't feel like anxious or whatever on top of it or don't judge yourself for it on top of it. I love that. It's almost like she should be a therapist. I mean, come on. (laughs) I agree. Honestly, after taking my law and ethics class, I'm like, I don't want to be a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Too many rules. It's too much liability. Like it is, it is, and there's too much paperwork. I, I gotta say, my goal is to remain a writer, writing from a more informed point of view with a master's. <laughs> that's that's the dream. <laughs> that's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> Thank you so much for being guests. Uh, before we let you go, we like to ask our guests to rate us. Uh, how were we as hosts? Did you enjoy being on the show? Is there anything we could do better? We're really feedback informed here on Just Between <laughs> Us. <laughs> We knew you were going to ask that because we also enjoy your podcast. We thought what would be fun to give you feedback is to actually do the session rating scale, which is what we do at the end of every session with our clients for the two of you. 
as the podcast host today. Great. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so Carrie, I will read you the four uh, the four categories and you can provide <laughs> feedback to Gabby and Allison. Okay. Awesome. Okay, great. So the first category from one to 10 is the relationship. So from one to 10, did you feel heard, understood, and respected? Oh, 10. Yes. Yay! I felt very listened to and respected. Great. The Phew. next category is goals and topics. So did you work on and talk about what you wanted to work on and talk about? I'm going to say a nine because yes, we did. We worked, we, we talked about all of the things we wanted. I wanted to talk about. Uh, we didn't hit on goals, but I don't think that was the point of this session. Right. Yes. We didn't set any goals. Our goal is to help psychoeducate people about what bad therapy looks like. Oh. There we go. <laughs> well, we sounds like a 10. 10 then. 10. 10 then. <laughs> Nailing it. All right. The next one is the approach or method category. So in this case, instead of therapist, it's the podcaster's approach is a good fit for me. Oh, 10. 10 out of 10. Very good fit for me. Yes. And then last is overall. So overall, today's session was right for me. Definitely a 10. This was so <laughs> much fun, you guys. I can't thank you enough. And thank you so much for your show and like making mental health awareness a thing. It's awesome. Oh, well, we could say the same about you guys. Thank you so much. And where can people listen to your podcast and find out more about what you're doing and your practices? You can find us at verybadtherapy.com and anywhere that you get your podcasts. We also have a Very Bad Therapy Facebook page, facebook.com slash verybadtherapy. And I think that's pretty much it uh, in terms <laughs> of all the fun stuff that we like to talk about. So come join us and we're always open to feedback. So if you listen to the show and you have thoughts, send it our way. Thank you so much. Thank this was you. amazing. We've never before had guests prepared for our. I know. <laughs> for our oh my god! <laughs> ten out of ten. Yeah. Very well done. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Just between us is a Forever Dog production, hosted by Allison Raskin and me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Montz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. Check out video clips from our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or youtube.com slash show. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. And follow our podcast on Instagram at JBU Podcast to see everything that we're up to for the show and also at Emotional Support Lady for Allison and at Gabby Road for me. Thanks! And don't forget to leave a review and subscribe. Please, please, please leave a review. It really helps us. Okay, we love you. Bye. Forever. Dog.